We're about to take up the text of verse 14 through the end of the chapter to verse 25. And this is where we begin in earnest to take up the ten plagues on Egypt. You've heard me remind you before that the Ten Commandments, the film with Charlton Heston, is one of my favorite films of all time. And one of the things that's marvelous to see on the screen, even in the old, old days of special effects, the, the uh, vastness of the plagues as they come upon Egypt. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Exodus chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And There shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself and Your mighty deeds. We ask this evening, Lord, that You would bless us by Your Word, that we would take it to heart, that it would affect who we are and how we relate to others. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be familiar with a concept called perspective. 
You may have seen this, for example, in when there is an event that is public that happens, perhaps something like a bank robbery. And the police go and they interview various witnesses, and they each have a slightly different story to tell because they have a slightly different perspective on the event. Not just that they're standing in different spots and have different vantage points, but they have a different focus. So, for example, someone who has a lot of money invested in the bank might be worried, how much did they get? And they might be focused upon that. Others who saw the bank robbers come out, if they were big and imposing people, They might have been afraid and that might have emphasized that because that caught their attention. Still others might have a concern for the people who are inside the bank and they might have focused upon that aspect of the story. Different perspectives. We see this even in everyday life. I think of my days in baseball. As a batter hits the ball and runs down the baseline and the throw comes... And immediately the first baseman yells, he's out. And the runner turns around and says, no, I was safe. And they both turn to the umpire to give the right answer. But it's not just when the facts are in dispute. Even when we're all sure about what's happened, we have a different view of what has happened. Again, to stay with our baseball illustration, if the batter hits a sharp line drive to center field, And the center fielder makes an incredible diving catch. Everyone knows what's happened, but they view it differently. For those that are in the field, that team, that's the greatest play of the game. For those that are at the plate, it's the worst play of the game. You see, perspective is important. And this evening, we're going to look at an example of perspective on the judgment of God. Perspective from the Egyptians, and perspective from God's people. I'd like us to see three things in this story of the first of the ten plagues. First, we see the judgment of God. It comes upon Egypt. Second, we see the sinner's response to God's judgment. And then third, we see the saint's hope in God's judgment. The judgment of God, the sinner's response, and the saint's hope. Let's begin then with the judgment of God that begins here in verse 14 of chapter 7. The context of this judgment is one of repeated calls to Pharaoh by God. You may recall that this is actually the third formal time that God is calling upon Pharaoh to let Israel go. And in each of these times, the same instrument is used. That is, God tells Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh and to bring Pharaoh God's word. God is making no attempt to change what is going on here. He's not trying to modify the message to be more persuasive to Pharaoh or to accommodate Pharaoh. Now, I think this is important for us to think about. That as we speak to others about the Lord, we should not feel the obligation to modify God's word in order to gain what we assume will be a more friendly audience. That's not how God operates. Over and over again, he sends Moses and Aaron with the same message. And 
from Moses' perspective, this is a continued command. God says to Moses, go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. There's no if, and, or but about it. It's a command directly to Moses. But the interesting thing is, right now, we have absolutely no reluctance from Moses at all. Previously, it seems that every time God engages Moses, Moses has at least a line or two of resistance. Or, I'm not sure I can do this, Lord. I'm not sure they'll listen to me. You see none of that here. Moses is directly and immediately obedient. There's no reluctance at all. Now, previously, in the previous two instances, God had sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh with his word and with signs to validate his word. Now we see a third thing enter. That is the judgment of God. Now, when we speak of the judgment of God, Oftentimes, from our perspective, what we think about is something way far off. Something that we need to think about in the future. Some big event that will happen. It's not something that we need to worry about in our daily lives. We have time for that later. We're caught up in the minutia of life, and we don't think about God and His judgment. But God's judgment actually comes in the context of everyday life. Notice how God's judgment meets Pharaoh. God comes to Pharaoh on his own ground or his own terms. In verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out on the water. Now, Pharaoh would go out to the bank of the Nile River as a part of his daily practice. We see this later in chapter 8, verse 20, in which Pharaoh does the exact same thing. And for the most part, as we look at this text, we think that this is something that Pharaoh did each and every day. And it would make sense, because the Nile would be a place of refreshment, of water. It would be a place where Pharaoh would remind himself of his power and his authority. And so this was his routine. But if we put it into our context, to think about how God meets us in the everyday. It's almost as if God said to Moses, go and find Pharaoh. Go catch him before he gets in his car to go to work. It's just something he did every single day. Now, this judgment comes to Pharaoh not only in his own routine and in his own grounds, it also comes to him in his place of security. You see, God does not need to bring judgment upon his enemies at their weakest point. God is so strong that he brings it to them upon what they believe is their strongest point. That's the strength of Egypt. It's the Nile. It's interesting that in all the cases where we see here in our text the word Nile, the actual Hebrew word is the river. You couldn't mean any other river but the river Nile. It was just the river. It was so important. It was the source of agriculture and of wealth for all of Egypt. We live in a day and age in which we are aware of the great American breadbasket, the Great Plains. But do you realize, before America was discovered, and our heartland was used to produce crops, that most of the world's crops came from Egypt. 
Egypt was so agriculturally fruitful, it was a place that during the entire time of the Roman Empire, that the Romans exported all of the grain they needed all throughout the empire, and especially in the capital city of Rome, from Egypt. It was the food source of the world. It was what made Egypt powerful. As a matter of fact, if we remember back to the book of Genesis, the Nile and its fruitfulness is what brought Israel to Egypt in the first place. It was the place of plenty in the midst of famine. But there was another significance to the Nile. It was not only the wealth and the agriculture that it produced. No, it was also religiously significant. Pharaoh went each day to the Nile, likely with his priests, to perform religious ceremonies. And more than that, the Nile was not just a holy place for the Egyptians. The Nile was a god of the Egyptians. It was seen as being one of the prime deities of Egypt. It was the expression of Egyptian power and Egyptian religion. It was not an inanimate object. Now, we need to remember this as we think about this plague. Everything that's happening to the Nile is a judgment on the prime god of Egypt, not just a river. But also, plainly and practically, the judgment that comes on the Nile is significant. The text describes it for us in colorful detail. That not only is the water ruined, but the fish die. Now, this would get your attention quickly. Now, many of you know I am not a fisherman. But I think I'm smart enough to realize that if you went out and caught a couple of dozen fish and left them out in the sun, unrefrigerated, that would not want to be, be a place where you would want to stay. That would stink. Not only would you not be able to eat them, you would not be able to keep any other food down. Just imagine what the Nile would look like. Instead of being clean, flowing water, teeming with food, it is red blood with bloated fish floating on the top, stinking to heaven. That's what God does. There's no way that doesn't get the Egyptians' attentions. There's no way that you can walk by and not notice what is going on. God has done this specifically and intentionally to get their attention. Now, you see this even in your own families, don't you? When you want to get your children's attention and you discipline them or bring a judgment upon them, we might call it a punishment, you do it in a way in which is practical and will affect them. No parent says to their child, you haven't cleaned your room, so no trip to Paris and Berlin this summer. No. You say, you can't use your phone. No video games. No computers. No friends. You do this in a way to get their attention, to understand what they've been doing is wrong. That's what God is doing here to the Egyptians. But the judgment here is not just an attempt to push Pharaoh to get Israel out. I think sometimes we come to the ten plagues and we think of them as God's way to twist Pharaoh's arm to get Israel freed. 
But that's not the case. If we think of it that way, we forget that God is God. That if God wanted to, he could have had Israel freed immediately. God is doing something else in these plagues. And what he is doing here is he's bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. What's happening here is not an attempt by God to convince Pharaoh, but it is an attempt, a successful attempt, to demonstrate his power to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Look at verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. Do you see what God's doing here? He doesn't say, so you will let Israel go, we will strike the Nile. He says, so you will know I am God, we will strike the Nile. Now this is especially important as we recall what we've seen before, that not only was the Nile an Egyptian god, but Pharaoh himself considered himself a god. The human manifestation of the sun god. Now, Pharaoh's heart here is already hardened. We see this in verse 14. God observes to Moses that Pharaoh's heart is already hardened. So what God is not trying to do here is to convince Pharaoh to bring something about. There's no need for God to be winsome here. No. God simply declares who he is. And there's something that's interesting here beyond even the judgment on the Nile and the judgment on Pharaoh. If you look closely at verse 19, you see the incredible effects of this plague. It's not just the river that turns to blood. It's basically all of the water supply of the Egyptians that's turned to blood. All their canals, their rivers, their ponds, their pools of water. They shall become blood. And then there's this interesting phrase at the end of verse 19. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Now, if you have a translation of the Bible that puts in italics words that are supplied in the translation to help give meaning, languages don't translate mathematically one for one. We need to sometimes supply words. Words that are supplied here are in vessels. The Hebrew actually says, there shall be blood throughout all the land, even in wood, or on wood, and on stone. Now why is that significant? It's because throughout the Bible, wood and stone are used to refer to the idols of the heathen. In Deuteronomy 28 verse 36 The Israelites are warned that they shall not serve other gods of wood and stone. This phrase, wood and stone, occurs nine times in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, in the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Daniel. Over and over again referring to idols. So do you see what God is doing here? He's not just making life uncomfortable for the Egyptians. As we think about this story, perhaps again if we think about the movie, we think God is trying to make life as miserable as possible for the Egyptians so that they will lobby Pharaoh to get rid of these Israelites. That's not primarily what God is doing. He is doing that. But primarily what God is doing is he is bringing judgment down 
on the gods of Egypt. Well, what happens then as God brings this judgment? What is the sinner's response? We see this in verses 22 through 25. And there are three types of responses that the Egyptian sinners bring. The first we see in verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The first response of the sinner is foolishness. Now stop and think about this for a moment. If all of your water supply is turned to blood, and your answer are the mighty magicians, why would the magicians go about ruining more water? You know, it would be like this. Let's say, for example, that there was a problem with your water line into your house. That somehow oil had gotten into the water line and all of the water in your system had been ruined. You couldn't use the tap. You couldn't pour out of the faucet. And you didn't know what to do. But then you remembered, you opened up your refrigerator and you had a pitcher of water in there, cold and ready to drink. And someone said, this is wonderful, let me take care of this. And they popped a can of oil and dumped it in the pitcher. He said, what are you doing? Why did you just ruin all that we had left? Why would you think that would be a good idea? That's the best response of the sinner. Now, why is this? It's because sinners can't undo the work of God. At best, they can mimic the destructive work of God. And this is just like the actions of our enemy Satan, isn't it? Satan can never do any good. All he can do is mimic God's actions in destructive capacity. So, for example, we understand and we know that we need to be right with God. And we can only be right with God by a work of God. And so Satan's answer is to tell us we are not right with God. We're under condemnation. And we can only be saved by work. Except for, he doesn't say we can be saved by God's work. He tells us we can be saved by our own work. It's a mimicking that is designed for destruction. You may have seen a story or heard about in the news. Oftentimes it comes up in the context of a couple that is getting a divorce. And they have all these possessions. A grand piano. Fine china. And one or both of the spouses decide that in order to really get back at the other person, they're going to cut that grand piano in half. Here's your half, here's my half. We're going to break all the dishes in half. Here's your half, here's my half. And in trying to hurt the other person, who are they hurting? Themselves. What good is half of a sawn piano? What good is a broken piece of china? But you see, often this is what the sinner resorts to. The second response we see of the sinner is in verse 23. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. The sinner is not only foolish, the sinner is stubborn. What what does Pharaoh do in the midst of all of this? He turns. He acts as if nothing is happening. He goes back into his house. 
He refuses to acknowledge God's judgment. I mean, could you imagine this? The Nile is stinking up the entire neighborhood. The people are moaning. And Pharaoh says, well, have a good day. I'm going to go home now. He just acts like this is an ordinary day. Like the Nile turns to blood every day. I mean, it takes a real amount of stubbornness of heart to do this. This, I think at first glance, seems to be a very ordinary statement. But I think as we look at verse 23 closer, it is a prime evidence of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. He's completely unaffected by it. And we see this, don't we, in people today in our midst. People see the judgment of God and they ignore it. They pretend it's not there. They act like it doesn't bother them, like they can go along. And I like to think of it like this. It's as if you were driving down the highway in your vehicle and you started to hear a loud pinging noise. And you say to yourself, that can't be good. And you start to get a little nervous. You've got some miles to go before you get home and you say to yourself, I know what I can do to resolve this situation. I can turn up the radio. And if I turn up the radio, I won't hear that pinging at all. It won't bother me one bit. Everything will be just fine. Until, of course, you've driven a few more miles down the road and your engine breaks down. Because ignoring something doesn't make it go away. It actually makes it worse. And it's even worse to ignore the judgment of God than it is to ignore a problem in your car. We see the foolishness of the sinner. We see the stubbornness of the sinner. And then in verse 24, we see a third response. We see the desperateness of the sinner. Look with me at verse 24. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Now, God's judgments have a way of getting our attention even when we try to ignore them. And this is true here with the Egyptians. The Egyptians are out by the Nile digging for water where previously there had been plenty. Now, could you imagine being an Egyptian in this context? You're used to living with a multitude of sources for water. Water is plentiful. And you're used to seeing the slaves work. They do the digging. They do the hard work. Now, we know from later in the book of Exodus that the plagues that come upon Egypt do not come upon Israel. So imagine now that you are an Egyptian on your hands and knees, scraping with your fingernails, trying to get sips of water that aren't tainted from the Nile, and you look over and you see the slaves enjoying crisp, cool water. You would think that would make you wonder, what's the difference here? What's going on here? It might get your attention. Well, we've seen the judgment that comes from God and the sinner's response. But there is also a hope for the saint in the midst of judgment. You see, we must remember that deliverance comes for God's people in the context of judgment. Look at verse 16. 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. You see, God is bringing these judgments upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians to deliver his people. Judgment upon sinners is also the deliverance of God's people. Think of it this way. The very same waters that drowned the world in the time of Noah floated the ark. There was no difference. It's the same event. But the perspective is very different. The perspective of those who fight against God and the perspective of those who serve God and whom God has blessed. We see this, of course, ultimately in the judgment upon Jesus Christ. It is in the context of judgment that the greatest blessing the believer will ever receive comes. You do not have hope of eternal life. You do not have hope of blessedness. You do not have hope of being with the Lord your God apart from the judgment that was visited on Jesus Christ. That judgment delivers you. In the same way, we may view the last judgment. The Bible tells us of people who will pray and cry out and ask for the mountains to fall down on top of them so that they might avoid the judgment of God. But for the believer, the last judgment holds no fear at all. It is the ushering in to glory and the wedding feast of the Lamb. Deliverance comes to God's people in judgment. And God's people are delivered to serve God. That's what Moses calls for in verse 16. And that is the saint's hope. It is to be with God and to serve Him forever. It is not just to escape. The Israelites' hope was not just to escape Egypt. It was so that they would be with God, that they would serve God, that they would be blessed by God. That's what deliverance brings about. And then finally we see that God is glorified in His judgment. Look at verse 17. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. This judgment that comes upon Egypt is so that you shall know. I think the pronoun here is intentionally you. It's not so that the Egyptians will know. It's so that you will know. You, Pharaoh, you, the Egyptians, you, Moses, you, Aaron, you, the Israelites, and you, Christ's church. So that you will know that the Lord is God. He has brought his judgment down on Egypt. He's poured his judgment on the false gods. He has shown himself to be victorious. Now, God could have brought about Israel's release right away. Why didn't he do that? It was so that he could set up this drama of redemption, this lesson of his victory over and over again, that God is glorified in the judgment of sinners. Now, this is always the case. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. But that aroma is different. To the one it is a fragrance from death to death. To the other, 
a fragrance from life to life. Do you remember what was said of our Lord Jesus Christ when He was born? Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Jesus distinguishes. God's judgment distinguishes. So what does this mean for us then? Well, if you are here this evening and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is one primary application that you must take now. And that is, you must repent. Because God will be vindicated in judgment. He will not relax His judgment. He will not relent it just for you. You are not the exception that proves the rule. You must repent. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this evening, the main and primary application to you is that you must repent. That you must look to the Lord your God. That you must trust Him. Stop seeking sufficiency in yourself. Stop wondering if God is in control and if God can handle things. And also... Be encouraged. Do you notice what's happening here with the Israelites and their deliverance from Egypt? That God has deliberately linked the deliverance of the Israelites with His glory. They're the same thing. So what does that mean then for you and for me? It means that God has linked the deliverance of His people with His glory. How more certain could you be of deliverance? God is not going to abandon His glory. He's not going to do anything that does not advance His glory. That is certain. And our deliverance is linked to God glorifying Himself in that. And so this evening and this week, seek the glory of God in what you do. Because in seeking the glory of God, What the Bible tells us is you are seeking your own good. Our good is found in the glory of God, in His deliverance of His people, and in the judgment that comes upon His enemies. Let's pray.